0: Snuff Production.
1: Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly and Jan Fran with you. It is Friday the 4th of March and Jan, the Winter Paralympics begin in Beijing tonight.
2: They sure do. And on this episode of the show, we're going to meet a young Australian snowboarder, Ben Toothope.
3: Doctors were actually told I may never be able to walk or talk. My parents took baby steps. But then, what was so great about them is they never wrapped me in cotton wool and they let me kind of explore and do everything that I wanted and to be a normal kid.
1: So that's Ben Chudhope. He talks about his experience with cerebral palsy and his love of snow and the amazing achievements he's made. He's the co-captain of the Australian Paralympic team competing in Beijing. We'll hear more from him in today's briefing. First, here are today's headlines.
2: We are starting with the situation in the Ukraine and Vladimir Putin says that Russia's invasion of the country is going according to plan.
0: Special military operation is being conducted strictly in accordance to the plan and schedule. All objectives that were set are being resolved or achieved successfully.
1: Russia's still claiming the port city of Kurzon, saying it's taking control of the local and regional government buildings in that Black Sea port city. And they've continued heavy shelling of Ukrainian cities in the north, including Kiev. And there's still that 60 kilometre long military column of tanks on the city's edge.
2: Yeah, it is a very different story, though, if you listen to the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky.
3: We are a nation that broke the enemy's plans in a week. We beat them. Our military, our border guards, our territorial defense, even ordinary farmers captured the Russian military every day. And they all
1: say the same thing. They don't know why they're here. So, very mixed messages from those two sources, um, obviously with very different objectives and very different audiences. Um, Vladimir Putin has spoken to the French president, Emmanuel Macron, and said that the Ukrainian tenacity means the worst is yet to come.
2: That's not a great sign. I know that peace talks or ceasefire talks are scheduled to happen between the two countries. There's been a few rounds of them with no avail. Neither country looks like it's willing to back down at all. During that call, it was a 90-minute call between Putin and Macron. He said that Moscow was aiming for full control of the country via either diplomatic or military means. So I'm not sure what any peace talks in the future might achieve with that attitude.
1: And the Quad Alliance of Australia, the US, Japan and India has taken a veiled swipe at China when it met at an urgent meeting overnight. It agreed a Russian type of invasion should not be allowed to happen in the Indo-Pacific, alluding to the strained relationship between China and Taiwan.
2: Yeah, so this was a meeting that was called by the US President Joe Biden. Um, It was unscheduled. It was pretty urgent. And he called it after India abstained from a motion at the United Nations General Assembly that condemned Russia's invasion in Ukraine. So three out of four Quad members condemned that invasion. India mm, didn't really say anything. And that's partly because India relies on military supplies from Russia.
1: Mm, I'd love to have been in the room and hear what they said to India. Mm. Scott Morrison has spoken to the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz overnight. He tweeted the discussion included standing firm with Ukraine, including through sanctions and Australia's military and humanitarian support, strengthening our hydrogen partnership and common interests in the Indo-Pacific. Well,
2: the Indo-Pacific, that's a very big focus point, obviously for the Quad organisation. For those who don't know what it is, it's this sort of diplomatic organisation that looks specifically at the Indo-Pacific region. And one of the key issues is that China has a very close relationship with Russia. In February, they put out a joint statement saying that their friendship knows no limits. So that's going to be a very big question for the Indo-Pacific region moving forward, which is, again, why I imagine Biden would have called this very urgent, unscheduled meeting.
1: Yeah, I guess really that quad is all about balancing China's power in the region.
2: Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, in terms of uh, other people sort of reacting to the situation in Ukraine, athletes from Russia and Belarus have been banned from the Paralympics. As we said, begins in Beijing tonight.
4: To the para-athletes from the impacted countries, we are very sorry that you're affected by the decisions or your go- that your government took last week in breaching the Olympic truce. You are victims of your government's actions.
1: Yeah, the sad thing is there that the Russian Federation athletes at the Games we just witnessed got to compete, but because of the timing of this, the Paralympians won't be able to.
2: Yeah, there's 38 athletes that are going to fall under this suspension. And basically the National Paralympic Committee just said that there were athletes that were threatening to boycott and not compete and that would jeopardise the Games' viability and that's why they decided to ban them.
1: Really interesting it's happening in China, given what we were just talking about, China's position on Russia. Flood chaos continues in the northern rivers as locals struggle to access uh, their properties, petrol, food, mattresses, medicine and fresh water.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of people doing it really tough in that area right now. So the residents of McLean are being warned of further flooding with fears that the water will overrun the levee there. Now, yesterday in Lismore, vital medicine had to be brought in via helicopter and there were thousands of people uh, who've been flooded and are basically scrambling to clean the mud out of their homes.
1: Yeah, it's been devastating to watch. Um, Lots of friends posting pictures from the Northern Rivers just desperately crying out for help. Lismore, of course, other smaller towns like Ocean Shores, Mullum, they feel like they've only got each other and they're screaming out for outside assistance with this enormous cleanup. Obviously, SES resources have been limited, and the Defence Force have had ground forces and helicopters working across the northern rivers and southeast Queensland. In New South Wales, they say there's 170 personnel on task with 115 more to come. In Queensland, 70 on task, 550 more to come. But clearly, it hasn't been enough or fast enough yet.
2: Mm-mm. There may be one saving grace here, and that is that. Sydney and surrounding areas were sort of spared the worst of it yesterday. I think we expected the rainfall to be much heavier and much more dire than it was. But the Hawkesbury River is still sort of a major focus of today. There's two fresh evacuation warnings overnight and Wiseman's Ferry as well as flood waters moved downstream.
3: Where well, we're seeing flood levels uh, still rise slowly around the Windsor Bridge um, and significant inundation in and around that area. Around
1: 40 Sydney suburbs in the northwest are still under evacuation orders, but residents in the southwest around the Georges River and the Nepean River are coming out of those evacuation orders as the rivers ease.
2: And remember when Novak Djokovic was in hotel detention and everyone realised that there were refugees in the same hotel who had been in detention for eight years? We spoke to one of them on the briefing, the Iranian refugee Mehdi Ali.
3: And it's really hard. People are suffering here. I'm suffering
1: here. So there's been a bit of good news. Um, Mehdi Ali has been freed from detention and he's on his way to the US.
2: Indeed. And that is what he has been waiting for for years. He wrote this on his Twitter account last night. He said, I'm free. I'm leaving Australia to start my life in the US. But then he also said, I won't be happy until all my friends get released from detention. It's not freedom until we are all free.
1: Wow. That's crazy. He came here when he was 15. A few years after arriving, he was classified as a refugee but still spent all those years, eight years mm. in detention. So it just seems ridiculous that our system works like that.
2: Yeah, and how slow and arduous it's been. And he's right, there are still people in detention, in limbo, not knowing if or when they'll be able to get out. That's when you neighbours
1: Devastating news.
2: <laughs> Is it?
1: So, this story we're about to read really begs one question Were you a neighbours person or a home and away person?
2: Oh, you know I was neither, babe.
1: <laughs> I wasn't m- meant to watch them as a kid, they were too immoral. <laughs>
2: Well, look, this is a this is a slightly bad news story for, you know, fans. Very
1: bad news story. What are you talking about? It's uh, not the worst story in the news bulletin today, but it's it's nowhere full near. On.
2: Let's put it in some context. <laughs> I might be the only person in Australia that doesn't really care that much. That's because I was never into neighbours or home and away. But if you do care about neighbours, you should know that it is coming to an end in June this year after guess how many years on television?
1: Is it as old as me? (laughs) It's
2: almost. (laughs) 37 years and 9,000 episodes later, it'll be no more.
1: Yeah. So it wasn't making money for Channel 10. It was actually propped up because they loved it in the UK for all those years. But Channel 5 in the UK announced they'd no longer fund the show. I believe the decision was about putting priority on local productions in the UK. So they've been trying to find a way to fund it, but they haven't been able to do it. Um, So it's over. No more Ramsey Street.
2: I know. And look, uh, maybe I'm not too devastated about it, but I can see why people would be. I mean, it was such an institution. It's been around for so long.
1: They were like friends and family before dinner.
2: You know, the show launched so many household names, Kylie Minogue, obviously Mm. the big one, Guy Pearce, Margot Robbie.
1: The popularity in the UK was a strange phenomenon. So in 2003, I got a real sense of it. I was there for a bit of work as a like a 21-year-old, and I had sort of a bit of a flowing blonde mullet at the time. My God. And the amount of times I got stopped and compared to Jason Donovan Ah. (laughs) was ridiculous. (laughs) The rest of the time I was getting compared to Prince Harry. Okay. So it was a wild trip.
2: Yeah, wow. Stay tuned from now until June, or the last episode will air in September. But
1: What do you think they'll pack in? There'll be a car crash, a wedding, maybe a flood. All right, that's it for our headlines. Uh, We're about to have an interview with Ben Chudhope, Paralympic athlete at the opening ceremony of the Beijing Paralympics. So tonight is a very exciting night for our winter Paralympians. Um, The games kick off in Beijing and one of our athletes is a guy called Ben Chudhope. This guy's pretty amazing. He was the youngest ever Australian Winter Paralympian when he was selected for the Sochi Games in 2014 at the age of just 14. He was the youngest competitor, not just from Australia, though, of any nation at those Games. So eight years later, he's about to compete at his third Paralympics. Um, He was just outside the medals at Pyeongchang in 2018 and has a good chance in Beijing. He's from Sydney. He trains a perisher, go perisher, he says he loves all kinds of boarding. So not just snowboarding, but skateboarding, surfing, paddleboarding, wakeboarding. If it's a board, he's on it. And he's been given the honour of uh, being named the co-captain of our team in Beijing. He arrived there this week. And our producer, Brooke Lowther, spoke to him from his training camp in Finland just before he headed to China.
0: Ben, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Can we start by, I guess, just getting a little bit of back history about how you began snowboarding? And look, if you're comfortable talking about your disability, can you just outline for us, you know, what you've been able to overcome to compete in three Paralympic Games?
3: I was born with cerebral palsy, um, left-sized hemiplegia, And my parents me told me about my diagnosis when I was around probably 12 months old. And so for that first year, they saw some of my milestones weren't getting reached and knew something wasn't just right. It was kind of a mother's instinct. And so they went and got the diagnosis and doctors were actually told I may never be able to walk or talk. My parents took baby steps but then what was so great about them is they never wrapped me in cotton wool and they let me kind of explore and do everything that I wanted and to be a normal kid as much as I could be. So I did a lot of therapy with the silver palsy lance growing up, learning all the skills and fundamentals just to be kind of a normal kid. And so I guess that correlates quite well to um, picking up snowboarding and finding a passion for the snow where my parents were they they just loved going on snow holidays I have two older sisters as well and so we actually had a house at Mount Hotham. all our holidays were to a snow house and I started skiing when I was three years old and then um switched over to snowboarding um, when I was eight years old my older sister and dad were snowboarding at the time and I just thought it looked like the coolest thing ever and they kind of wanted to do what they were doing.
0: So you're saying you started skiing when you were three, snowboarding when you were eight. So when did you actually start competing?
3: It kind of was a very quick kind of transition from learning to snowboard to actually starting to train and get more into it. As a younger sibling... My sisters got into it through in schools and they were actually quite talented skiers and so showboarders themselves. And so as the younger sibling, when they want to start training and getting more into the competitive side of it, I kind of just got forced into it. As, yeah, just the youngest, okay, you can do it too. I guess I started training when I was around nine or 10 years old, just at the local parish in the sports club. And through that, the head coach of that club had a connection with the Australian Paralympic head coach at the time. I rode and trained with the Paralympic team for only like a week or a couple of days when I was like 10 years old that coach saw I had potential and took a real liking to me. And so he kind of took me under his wing for a couple of years. I was too young to actually go overseas and start competing. But when I was 13, so two or three seasons later, the Paralympic coach actually gave me the opportunity to say, hey, you can actually come overseas and try to qualify to the Sochi 2014 Paralympic Games. I was just emphatic with that and it was just an amazing opportunity for me. But the reason why I wanted to do it because it it was the most amount of time off school. I guess that's where my Paralympic journey kind of started. And in that season, when I was 13, 14 years old, I was lucky enough to actually get some really good results in some of those early competitions. And the International Paralympic Committee gave me a wild card to go and compete at the 2014 Games because I was too young to actually qualify on my own.
0: What are some of your career highlights then? I mean, if you could sum it up from when you were 14 to now, what would some of your career highlights be?
3: Yeah, it's been an epic journey. Um, for the last nine years, and I'm so fortunate that I'm able to be in this position to do what I love at such a young age and do it all through my school and education and now through uni as well. So it definitely taught me a lot, and I don't take it for granted as well, being able to travel overseas and do things that not a lot of people get to do. I guess some of my career highlights is in Sochi, I got the opportunity to carry the Australian flag at the closing ceremony. That was really made me so proud to be an Aussie and really solidified kind of my journey on the Paralympic kind of circuit and made me eager to want more. And so, yeah, I was really proud to be an Aussie um, back then. And, uh, yeah, it was just a huge honour that, I got the recognition from the Paralympic team. Going forward now in the position I'm in, two games under my belt and heading into my third as the number one involved snowboarder. It's just been epic. And just recently, I got awarded the Crystal Globe to this season. And that is your overall kind of world ranking at the end of a season. And I took out Everything, And so it, it was just amazing to actually take home all the medals you could actually get and be the world number one snowboarder heading into the Paralympic Games. So what's your ultimate
0: goal for the 2022 Beijing Paralympic Games? I mean, what would success look like for you?
3: Yeah, um, I feel like the easy one, the easy goal to say is to get a medal because that what every competitor wants to do on that day. And we wouldn't be a competition, we wouldn't be Paralympic, Olympic sports if no one strives to get a medal. But one of my biggest goals, and being in the sport for so long, I've seen the progression of power snowboarding, and it's such a big part of my life that the Paralympics actually allow us to showcase our sport to the wider public. Around the world. And so for me, I really want to show how far just our sports has come and show off what we can do and the abilities of not just me, but every athlete on the circuit. So I really want to make good races, big courses, lots of fun and chaos, because that's what our sport is about. And just put on a great show for the spectators so they can go, wow look at these amazing athletes, do what they do, do what they love and strive just for greatness.
0: So when can we see you compete? I mean, when can everyone sit on the couch and watch you?
3: We have two events on and our first event is Border Cross, and that is on the 7th of March. Okay. On the Monday and then the Bank Slalom, our second event is on the 12th of March on that Saturday.
1: Go, Ben. That was Ben Tudhope. And as you heard, he's competing in the Snowboard Cross, which is on Monday, and the Banked Slalom on Saturday, the 12th of March. And he was speaking to our producer, Brooke Lowther. All right, the weekend briefing's coming at you tomorrow. Jamila, who have you got on this week?
4: Hello, team. My guest this weekend is Alice Zaslavski of MasterChef fame, turned incredible cookbook author, and currently working as the ABC News Breakfast food correspondent. I love Alice. She is always on the pulse of what is happening in food and the restaurant scene in all our major cities. But most importantly, she's a food democrat. She doesn't make you feel ostracised or overwhelmed by food. Her tips for getting more vegetables into your diet, for getting your kids to eat something good for them as well as just enjoying the taste of your food, are so good. So if you're a foodie or even if you're not and you just want to make your food experience every day a little bit more pleasurable, this is the episode
1: for you. Well, I'm in the latter category, struggling to, you know, even do recipes from Ottolenghi's Simple book. Um, So if you can break it down for me, that's great. Thank you so much, Jamila. um, And thank you to our hardworking team here at The Briefing Behind the Scenes. We'll catch you Monday.
0: Listener.